0: Hello and welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. On this episode, our Associate Care Pastor, Joshua Masters, continues in our series on Galatians. If you wanna watch the video of this message or listen to this week's worship, you can do all of that on our website, brookwoodchurch.org, or that and many more things on our Brookwood Church app. We pray that this message encourages you in your walk with Christ.
1: Let's just stay in this moment with the Spirit for just a moment. Close your eyes wherever you are, whether you're sitting or standing. Do you know that your chains have been broken? Are you amazed by the grace that broke those chains? This song that we're singing helps us pray, Jesus, your grace amazes me. Where else could I go? Where else could I run? What else could I do? Have you come to a place where you truly grasp that there's nothing you can do? That his grace is the only place that we can run to? Is our salvation based on something that we do or something Christ has already done? Let's pray together and pray for the young woman who had a medical emergency. And let's pray that God speaks to us that we have an experience with him this morning. Father God, we thank you that you are a God of mercy, that your grace truly amazes us. Allow us to see your grace in a new way and may it give us new hope today. And we pray for the woman who had a medical issue this morning. Lord, we don't know all the details, but we give you praise that we hear that everything is okay. We pray that you would bring healing, that you would bring restoration, that you would bring hope. And we pray for that in this room today for each one of us as well. Bring us healing. Bring us restoration. Bring us hope. We ask this in the name of Christ, who is our King and Savior. Amen. go ahead and have a seat if you haven't already, when we realize that we have nowhere else to run, that is when we encounter and experience God's grace. Is Christianity a matter of law or is it a matter of belief? Is it grace or is it works? Today we're continuing our series on the book of Galatians called Living Free, and we're, and we're working through the book of Galatians together. And today we're starting in chapter 3. We've made it up to chapter 3, so you can go ahead and turn or swipe in your Bibles to that passage. If you're using the Bible that we have available here at Brookwood, it's on page 938. So we'll turn there together, 938. And as you find that, let me give you a quick recap of where we are in the story. Paul has written this letter, a pretty direct letter, to the church in Galatia, all the churches in the Galatia area, because they've been wooed away from the faith and the freedom that they have found in Jesus Christ by people who want them to embrace the work based mentality of Jewish law and tradition. Now, there's nothing wrong with traditions. It's the middle of July, so I've just started sketching out my Christmas village. You know, i got to start getting ready. <laughs> Takes up the whole sunroom. I love my Christmas village. There's nothing wrong with traditions per se unless your identity is found in them. Then it becomes a problem. See, the Judaizers didn't believe faith in Jesus Christ was enough. They thought faith was important, but they also believed that you couldn't gain God's favor without remaining true to the Jewish law. And for the Gentiles, that also meant becoming fully Jewish through circumcision. And there's the real issue. The Judaizers in Galatia believed a Gentile could be saved, but only by becoming fully Jewish. They believed salvation came not through Christ's work alone, but primarily through their national identity as the people of Israel. That's where they believed that their salvation came from. And that is the teaching that had infiltrated the Galatian church. So in the first couple chapters, Paul describes the problem, he sets forth the problem, and he explains why he is the right person to address those problems. He talks about his authority to speak into this issue. And now, in chapters 3 and 4, and remember that there were no chapters, of course, when he wrote it, but what we call chapters 3 and 4, Paul is going to lay out a case for justification by faith rather than justification through works. And we'll explain what that really means in just a few minutes. I want you to think of the next couple chapters. I think this will help. Think of the next couple chapters as a courtroom drama, and Paul is the persecutor. And the defendants are the Judaizers. Paul is going to present accusations and rhetorical questions and witnesses and supporting evidence. And he lays out a series of very specific arguments. Today we're going to cover the first two of his arguments for justification by faith. The evidence of a believer's experience and the evidence of Scripture. The evidence of a believer's experience and the evidence of Scripture. And then next week, we're going to continue and we're going to look at his next two arguments. Paul is making a case. He's presenting a case. And the first witness that Paul calls to the stand is you. You and your experience with God. More specifically, the experience of the believers in Galatia. But it applies just as much to our own lives. Chapter 3, verse 1. We'll read together. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? So Paul's in a good mood. That's a good start, right? The NLT says evil spell. Does anyone have a different translation? What's another word? Bewitched. I love that. Yes, who has bewitched you? Now, the Galatia was settled by Gaelic people as part of the great Celtic migration around 300 B.C., but Paul's not talking about leprechaun magic here, and he's not talking about sorcery or witchcraft. The word for bewitched here is vaskeno, and it means to bring evil on someone by feigned praise or charm. It means to lure someone to react out of their emotions rather than acting out of what they know to be true. Sounds like what happened in Eden, doesn't it? Lured away by emotions and false logic. And Paul's question here is reminiscent of the question that God asks in the Garden of Eden. God said, who told you you were naked? Who cast an evil spell on you? And I think both of those questions come from a place of heartbreak. How could you let them do this to you? And in the next four verses, Paul is going to remind them about the experience that they had with God when they were saved. And that's our first fill-in this morning. If you have your outline, the first fill-in is true belief in Christ responds to personal experiences with God true belief in Christ, responds to personal experiences with God. Have you had an experience with God? Because the experiences that we have with God should dictate how we approach life moving forward. Let's keep reading. We'll look at the first five verses. O foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made clear, as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of His death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your Christian lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It is because you believe the message you heard about Christ. Now, again, we don't know Paul's emotions here. He's a pretty direct guy, so maybe he is angry. But these are his spiritual children. So even though he's being direct, I think that there's some compassion in his rebuke. He's saying, don't you remember what you experienced? Why are you rejecting what you saw God do? His argument is that they had an experience with God. And that experience was undeniable. And that they should live in the truth of that experience, knowing that it was undeniable. Here's a question for you. Have you ever had God do something incredible in your life? Have you ever experienced the grace of God? And have you ever let outside influences minimize that feeling over time? Maybe it was the influence of other people like the Galatians or some crisis that you faced. Maybe it was just day-to-day life. But true faith should respond to our personal experiences with God in a continual way. Our life should never be ruled by outside influences or our circumstances. Make sure you get this. The Christian life begins with an encounter with God. And it is directed by continual encounters with God. And if you're here this morning and you've never experienced a personal encounter with God, whether this is your first day at Brookwood or you've been coming for 25 years, but if you've never heard directly from God in some way, pursue that. Seek that. At the end of the service, we're going to have people down front and in the Care Connection room after the service so that they can encourage you and pray with you. Seek an encounter with God. God wants to live in a constant relationship with us. He wants us to experience the joy of being connected to him on a daily basis. Look at what David wrote in the Psalms. You will show me the way of life granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. That's not just in eternity. That's now. We sometimes forget that we can live that way now, today. And the Galatians had forgotten that too. Now, Paul is very specific in his argument here about the experience with God. Look back at uh, verse 1. The end of verse 1 says... For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. And when he says picture, he's obviously not talking about Instagram post. Paul says that the gospel was so vivid in their salvation that it was as if they were standing at the foot of the cross when Christ was crucified for them. They had an encounter with Jesus. And what happened after that? In verse 2, Paul says, This is the end of verse 2 You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. They had an encounter with Christ and they had an experience with the Holy Spirit. And after they received the Holy Spirit, they saw miracles in their lives. Verse 5. Does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Now, this word miracles, it does mean exactly what we think it means. It means water to wine and loaves and fishes and healing. But it also means a general empowerment over evil, a spirit-giving power in their lives. Now, be careful here. Looking at this verse, who provided the miracles they experienced? Perry's coming back in a couple weeks. We're going to report. <laughs> J.C. David and I, we're going to sit down. We're going to tell them by name who did not answer. <laughs> who provided the miracles? God. Yeah, they, the miracles and the power that they received were through the Holy Spirit. But Paul is specifically pointing out in this verse that the Holy Spirit and the miracles are given through blessings of God the Father. So catch that in just those five verses. They've had the experience of receiving salvation through Christ, empowerment through the Holy Spirit, and blessings from the Father. They've experienced all three members of the Trinity Yet they did nothing to earn it. Yet despite those experiences, they were trying to become right with God through their actions. Back to verse 2. You received the Spirit. Why? Because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be After starting your Christian lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? And so, skipping down to verse 5, I ask you again Does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It's because you believe the message you heard about Christ. But they didn't think that that was enough. Now, many of you are sitting there thinking, wow, Paul's right. Those Galatians were foolish. And we can do that because in our heads, we know that salvation is through Christ alone. Acts 16, 31. We know that in our heads, but is that how we live our lives? Is that what we really believe Is that what informs our actions? Because I think that God is asking us that same question. Set the top of your outline. I think God is asking us, after starting your Christian lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Let me ask you a question. And I'm not trying to trick you like Perry does. He admits it, but I am gonna ask you to be completely honest. Have you ever looked at another believer and thought, that person is a better Christian than I am? All right, let me ask you a harder question because I'm feeling generous, you don't have to raise your hands on this. Have you ever looked at another believer and thought, well, they're not much of a Christian? If you have had those thoughts, myself included, then you're comparing your actions to another person's actions, and at some level, you believe in righteousness by works. Yes, we're all at different stages of our spiritual growth, and it doesn't mean that a Christian can do whatever they want and get away with it, but our behavior is about our relationship, not our salvation. It is not about making you a better Christian. I want to repeat something that David Hardy said last week because he said it so perfectly. David said, before salvation, every person is equally separated from God. And after salvation, every person is equally reconciled with God. Actions cannot make you a better Christian they can only reveal that you're a more grateful one. And even that's only if your heart and your motives are correct. See, legalism that we see with the Galatians isn't restricted to following Jewish law. It's much more subtle than that. It's any action, any service, even any form of worship that you use to raise your standing before God. Christianity can't be measured by your actions. Your fate in eternity won't be based on what you do, but on what Christ did and whether you belong to Him. That's the only measure. True belief in Christ rejects salvation by works and receives salvation by faith. It rejects salvation by works and receives salvation by faith. Let's look at the book of Ephesians. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from ourselves, yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Not justification by works. Justification by faith. Now, the term justification by faith is kind of a mouthful and it's an unapproachable theology term. But this is what it means. That when you stand before God the Father, the Father will see Christ's righteousness instead of your failures. We are made right with God through Jesus. And we know that intellectually, so then why do we try to gain favor with God through our actions? Why do we return to a works-based mentality over and over again? We usually say, and in most sermons we'll say, it's pride. We want to have control. And I think for some that's true. But I think many of us that because we have an identity based in shame rather than Jesus Christ. I think deep down inside many of us are afraid to have God really look at us with nothing to offer. We think that we have to do something, something to cover our sin because if God were to really see me, if God really knew who I was, he might realize that the sacrifice wasn't worth it. I think that we're Adam and Eve trying to cover ourselves so God won't see what we've done. I think that we're the Galatians desperately trying to earn God's acceptance. But when Jesus Christ claims you as his own, he steps between you and the Father, and the Father can only see you through Jesus Christ. He sees Jesus Christ's righteousness counted as yours. And he did that because he sees you. Second, Second Corinthians says this, the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He knew that we couldn't keep the law. You don't have to. Christ did it for you. In fact, Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And our experience with God should be enough to rest Paul's case. Just the experience of the believer should be enough for justification by faith to be proven. But the Judaizers were likely using Scripture in their case against the Gentiles. But they were using Scripture out of context. And they were using Scripture without the revelation of Jesus Christ. So now what we're going to see is in verse 6, Paul is going to turn to his second argument. He turns from our experience with God to the evidence of Scripture. True belief in Christ is rooted in God's Word. True belief in Christ is rooted in God's Word. You can't accept Christ and not accept the fullness of His Word. Our salvation is rooted in the Word of God because Christ is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. You can't have Christ without the fullness of Scripture. But the Judaizers only wanted portions. Scripture, the portions that they took out of context. They were misusing Scripture to prove their point. But it is a bad idea to get into a Bible battle with Paul. Remember, Paul was a rising star among the Jewish leaders. He knew Scripture inside and out. He studied under the greatest rabbi of his day. He likely had most, if not all, of the Old Testament memorized, and he had a passion for Scripture, and that was before God got a hold of him. But now Paul had a direct revelation from Jesus Christ, and his argument was directed by the Holy Spirit. That is an uphill battle for the Judaizers who want to use Scripture as their argument. So, in the next nine verses, Paul is going to quote six passages from the Old Testament, referencing nine passages from the Old Testament. Why does he do that? Because the idea of salvation through faith is not just a New Testament idea, it's just carried into the New Testament. Faith has always been the standard. And since the Judaizers likely used Abraham in their argument for Gentiles to be circumcised, Paul's going to start there. So we pick it up in verse 6. In the same way, meaning he just explained our experience with God, right? So meaning in the same way you experience salvation... Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Paul is quoting Genesis 15, 6 here. Abraham had the righteousness of God counted toward him. Was it because of a law or a tradition he'd followed? No, the law hadn't even been given yet. No, it was because he believed. So what does that mean? verse 7. It means the real children of Abraham, then, are those who put their faith in God. Circumcision doesn't make you a child of Abraham. Faith does, only faith. Any action you take to make yourself right with God or to convince God to love you more is useless. Are you trying to live by the law? Because the law is legalism toward anything you put above your trust in Christ's sacrifice. Then in verse 8, as we move forward, Paul says something the Judaizers really aren't going to like. I think they're already not happy, but they're really not going to like this. What's more, Paul says, the Scriptures looked forward to this time when God would declare the Gentiles to be righteous because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, All the nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. Now, we're going to dig a lot deeper into the promise that God just made Abraham here next week. But catch the significance of what Paul is saying to the Judaizers. He's explaining that the scriptures always pointed towards salvation by faith for non-Jewish Gentiles. This is Paul's second scripture reference. We're only going to count it as one of the six, but he's actually referencing three Jewish uh, passages. Genesis 12.3, Genesis 18.18, and Genesis 22.18. Salvation for the Gentiles by faith was God's plan from the very beginning, and it's written in black and white in the Jewish scriptures. Yes, and I want to be clear about this. The people of Israel are the chosen people of God. Romans 11 is all about how God is not done with Israel. God will fulfill his irrevocable promises to Israel, and he has a purpose for them to fulfill. But that is about a mission and a calling for them as a nation. It has nothing to do with individual salvation. Salvation is through faith alone, and it always has been. So by pointing out that this was God's plan all along, what Paul is telling the Judaizers is that they're not only wrong now, but they were wrong before Jesus came. They've been wrong all along. What Paul is saying is you've never understood the Scriptures. Remember last week when David said that unity in the body of Christ who requires confronting face-to-face, Paul doesn't have a problem with that. He's good at that one. Righteousness cannot be attained by actions, only by faith. And what happens if you reject that truth? Verse 10. But those who depend on the law to make themselves right by God are under his curse, For the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey, how many of the commands? All the commands that are written in God's book of the law. That's his third quote from scripture, Deuteronomy 27, uh, 26. If you try to become right with God by keeping the rules, you will always be under a curse because God's standard is is perfection. This is the Torah. We call it the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. But the Jews call it the law. This is the law. Not just the Ten Commandments, there are over 600 commandments in these pages. And righteousness through the law means following everyone perfectly every day. Forever. It's impossible. It's impossible. And if you get it into your head that you might be up for it, first of all, that's an attitude of pride, so you've already lost. (laughs) But let's put that aside for a moment. If you think that you might be up for following these 600 rules, Jesus further explains in the Sermon on the Mount that perfection in this law extends to your heart condition and your inner thoughts. So you might flip through and you might say, oh, well, oh, here's one, here's one. Do not murder. I, I can do that, I cannot murder. But Jesus said, You've heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. I've called people idiots and I have meant it. But are you guys okay? But here's the thing, to God that's the same as murder. Obedience to God means complete obedience in thought, word, and deed. We can't even keep one of these laws perfectly, let alone all of them. We cannot meet this standard outside the grace of God. Paul continues in verse 11. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Verse 12. This way of faith is very different from the way of the law, which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. Now he's quoting Habakkuk and Leviticus. Let's leave these up here for just a few moments. In fact, I want you to read them, read them silently. Compare these two verses. Compare the two paths that they're offering. Are you experiencing life? I don't mean surviving. Are you experiencing a full and abundant life, the kind that Jesus described that you can read in John 10? Or do you feel drained? Do you feel tattered? Do you have joy or do you have worry? Look at these verses. Verse 12 is impossible you can't get there. So if you're not experiencing the life described in verse 11, a life marked by God's grace through faith in Christ alone, if you're not experiencing that, it might mean that you're shackled to the curse of verse 12 and you didn't even know it. There are more of us in this room with a works-based mentality than a grace mentality. Yes, we are supposed to work for the kingdom and there are people in this room who are not serving that should be, but that's from a posture of gratitude for our salvation, not a way to obtain it. It is gratitude for God's favor, not a way to get God's favor. But if you're not experiencing that kind of life, we're not at the end of the story. Remember when Paul quoted Deuteronomy earlier? In verse 10, he said, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. Cursed. But here's the answer. Verse 13. But Christ has rescued us from the curse. He has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse For our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised Abraham so that we who believe might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Here's your last villain. True belief in Christ removes the curse. removes my curse. Do you feel like you're living under a curse? Do you feel wounded by this life? There's nothing that you can do to make yourself right with God. But Christ took on that curse so that you could be set free. He himself, Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Don't stay in your shackles. Don't believe the lies that this world has told you about yourself. Don't remain in prison. Don't stay a slave to shame when Christ has purchased your freedom. Our care volunteers are going to come forward and they're going to be in the care connection room as well. And they want to pray with you. They want to encourage you. They want to help you put this burden down. Don't be afraid to let the Father really see you because he's already seen. And it's the reason that he sent his son. Father God, we thank you that you are a God who sees us. That you could have abandoned us, but you pursue us, you seek us. Lord, we desire an experience with you, an encounter with you. We desire to see you in the evidence of scripture. We desire that relationship, but we, in our fallen state, we don't know how to seek it. So show us and continue your grace in our lives. Lord, for those of us in this room that are carrying a burden, show us how your yoke is easy and light. Give the person who is struggling and afraid to put that burden down the courage to do it. Let us run to you and realize there's nothing that we can do. We ask this in the name of Christ, who took our curse upon himself,
0: amen. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life. One of the ways that you can do that is by getting connected here at Brookwood. If you would like to know more about the many ways that you can connect with Christians at Brookwood, or if you just have questions about who we are, you can email us at connections at brookwoodchurch.org or call us at 864-688-8326. You can also find our message archives on our website or on our Brookwood app. Thank you so much for listening and have a blessed day.